Hello everyone and welcome to South Asia Square, a wildspotnightly podcast on all things South Asia, where we bring you a roundup of the big stories in the region and speak to an expert guest for a deep dive into a major issue affecting South Asia. We are your hosts, Taisa and Ritika. And in this episode, we'll be speaking to Hong Kong Bad on Operation 1027, an alliance of armed groups making rapid advances against Myanmar's military junta regime. But first, a roundup of the big stories in the region. This roundup was recorded on 1st December and covers the news from 17th November to 1st December. On the 18th of November, the Uttar Pradesh government imposed a ban on halal certified items with manufacturers being asked to recall and relabel some products. Now, this ban came one day after a complaint was lodged by a member of BJP's youth wing accusing halal certification units of issuing forged certificates. The legal basis of the ban is under scrutiny. Manufacturers say they mainly need halal certificates for export as they are a legal requirement in several Muslim-majority countries. This ban is only the latest incident of discrimination targeting Muslims, particularly after the election of the Bharatiya Janata Party in 2014. In January this year, burqa-wearing students were denied entry to a Hindu college in Uttar Pradesh, sparking protests. Legislation prohibiting religious conversions and cattle slaughter have been used as grounds to prevent interfaith marriages and assault Muslim men, while also pushing butchers and animal rearers, many of whom are Muslim, out of business. More than a month after numerous armed groups in Myanmar launched a coordinated attack on the ruling military junta, regime bases and towns in the Shan, Khachin, and Rakhine states and in the upper reaches of Sagain and Mandalay regions have been seized. Rapid advances are being made thanks to a coalition between several of Myanmar's armed groups and anti-junta forces. The attack, dubbed Operation 1027, has exposed the weakness of Myanmar's military junta, which is retaliating with airstrikes. As the conflict intensifies, the number of internally displaced people in Rakhine and Palatwa has risen to 90,000 people in total, including more than 26,000 newly displaced. With refugees fleeing into China, India and Thailand, the fighting may disrupt junta relations with regional neighbours. On the 25th of November, the Chinese military held training drills near Myanmar's border, indicating strains in its ties with the military junta. A week before, central regime-backed rallies were held accusing China of lending support to the armed group. On the 29th of November, the U.S. Attorney's Office announced that it was filing charges against Indian Nikhil Gupta in connection with a foiled plot to assassinate Gurpatwat Singh Panun on U.S. soil. Panun, a U.S. citizen, is the founder of the separatist group Sikhs for Justice, which advocates for a separate Sikh state in the Punjab. Gupta was allegedly working with an Indian government agent who plotted the assassination from India before undercover agents from the U.S.'s Drug Enforcement Agency intervened. In response, India has said that it will form a committee to probe the allegations. The charges come just two months after Canada accused India of involvement in the murder of pro-Khalistan leader Hardeep Singh Nijar. India rejected the claims and called on Canada to take prompt action against anti-India elements operating within the country. India and Canada paused talks on a proposed trade agreement, likely due to tensions around the killing, and diplomats were expelled from both countries. 
Khalistani activists were also killed in the UK and Pakistan this year. Thousands of protesters have been staging a sit-in at the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan for over a month. The protests come right after Pakistan announced that no one could cross the border without a passport and visa from the 1st of November. Nearly 40,000 traders who regularly travel between Kandahar and Chaman will be impacted by this new policy. And trade has been suspended for over four days due to protesters blocking the Chaman Quetta Highway. Protesters demanded to be allowed to produce their national identity card to make the crossing, as was the earlier practice. Pakistan's government has been adamant that it wants to tighten the regulation, attributing its decision to Afghanistan's unwillingness to tackle the cross-border militancy. And this reversal of their policy in Afghanistan also led to a deportation order impacting over 1 million Afghan refugees. The Maldives' former president, Abdullah Yameen, has applied to the country's election commission to establish a new political party, the People's National Front. The move comes after reports of tensions within the ruling progressive party, People's National Congress coalition. Yamin was unable to contest Maldives' presidential elections earlier this year, as he is currently serving a sentence for corruption and money laundering. The election was won by Mohamed Moizu of the People's National Congress, founded by Yamin. His move is reminiscent of the split in the Maldivian Democracy Party, now in the opposition, following disagreements between former Presidents Mohamed Nasheed and Ibrahim Soli. The turmoil and split in the People's National Congress adds to the challenges faced by Moizu as the Maldives' new president. On the 20th of November, reports indicated that China was prioritizing the extension of the China-Myanmar Economic Corridor to Sri Lanka. Government sources said that a new shipping route would connect Sri Lanka's controversial Hambantota port to China's Chongqing province. On the 27th of November, Sri Lanka also approved a proposal by the China Petroleum and Chemical Corporation to build an oil refinery in Hambantota, indicating shifts in Sri Lanka's foreign policy due to dwindling foreign currency reserves. Despite this momentum, reports indicate that China-Myanmar economic corridor is beset by delays in Myanmar due to the ongoing violence in the kind state, civil disobedience against the junta government, and the junta arrests of local officials and activists, and a shortage of electricity. Pakistan has formally sought membership in BRICS, the intergovernmental organization that includes Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Pakistan's foreign ministry spokesperson, Mumtaz Zara Balok, said that Pakistan could play an important role in furthering international cooperation. Balok added that the ministry hoped Pakistan's application would be accepted in the spirit of inclusive multilateralism. Analysts have said that Pakistan's inclusion in the grouping might be challenging as India is a core member, pointing out that Pakistan was previously excluded from a foreign policy dialogue on the sidelines of a previous BRIC summit in China. Pakistan's ambassador to Moscow said that the country was counting on Russia's assistance to support Pakistan's membership and was in contact with other member countries as well. On the 23rd of November, the founding editor of the Kashmir Wala, Fahad Shah, was granted bail after nearly two years in detention in Jammu. Shah was detained in May 2022 under the Draconian Unlawful Activities Prevention Act in connection with an article published in the Kashmirwala in 2011. Shah's detention marked part of a broader crackdown on press freedom in India-administered Kashmir, 
Shah's detention marked part of a broader crackdown on press freedom in India-administered Kashmir, which has seen eight Kashmir-based journalists detained since 2017. In August, the passports of at least two journalists were suspended, with the Indian government citing security threats. The Indian government has also blocked access to the Kashmirwala's website and social media accounts. On the 23rd of November, thousands of Nepali protesters, led by the businessman Durga Prasai, clashed with police in Kathmandu. The protesters were calling for the restoration of the monarchy and the re-establishment of a Hindu state. Meanwhile, there were also rival demonstrations led by the National Youth Federation, the youth wing of the CPN-UML, protesting the incompetence of the ruling coalition government. Once an ally of Nepal's Prime Minister Pushpa Kamal Dahal, Prasai has taken an anti-establishment turn thought to be fueled by his outstanding debts. His slogans drew support from disenfranchised Nepalis, including those impacted by government loan policies who are looking for reliable political leadership, while the CPN-UML attempted to gain political advantage from public discontent with Nepal's government. And that's it for the News Roundup. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting Himal by becoming a member. We are a fully independent, non-profit media organization, and we rely on listeners like you to sustain and grow our work. You can see our membership plans at www.himalmag.com membership. And we've included a link to our membership page in the episode notes below. And now it's time for our deep dive, where we bring in experts, reporters, authors, and field specialists to talk about the important and unseen layers of a big story. Today we have with us Ong Kong Myat, a researcher with interests in nationalism, authoritarianism, conflict and social media in Myanmar and the wider Southeast Asian region. Ong Kong Myat is currently completing a PhD in political science from McGill University, Montreal. These shots, fired in Myanmar's northern Shan state at around 4 a.m. on October 27, are part of a series of attacks codenamed Operation 1027. The operation initiated by the Northern Alliance, codenamed 1027, to mark today's date, comes as Myanmar's army struggles to suppress resistance to its rule. The military had seized power in a coup in 2021. They have been operating a parallel civilian government ever since, and some young supporters for democracy took up arms. Their efforts are finally paying off, it seems, with the fighters making gains on at least three major fronts across northern Myanmar. On the 27th of October, an alliance of armed groups battling Myanmar's military junta launched a coordinated attack in the northern Shan state, making rapid advances. One month later, these armed groups attacked and seized junta bases across northern Shan, Kachin and Rakhine states, and the upper reaches of Sagain and Mandalay regions. As the conflict intensifies, more civilians are being displaced. As of the 16th of November, some 90,000 people had been displaced, including 26,000 people who were newly displaced in Rakhine state alone. Humanitarian aid has also been delayed due to intensified fighting, with key transport routes between Sitwe and Yangon being restricted. What led to Operation 1027, and how are the advances made by the armed groups being received in neighboring countries? Here to talk to us about this is Ong Kong Myat. Welcome to the podcast. 
thank you. Thank you for inviting me over to the podcast as a guest. It's a pleasure to be here and I do, I'm looking forward to share some of what I know about Burma and, and Burmese politics in general. Just to start off, what is this Operation 1027 that people are talking about? And who are these armed groups that make up what's being referred to as the Three Brotherhood Alliance? So the Operation 1027, it was launched on uh, 27 October where they got the name from. And uh, this year, it was in this year in uh, mostly in uh, northern Shan State near the Chinese border. So the primary objective of the operation is to capture uh, the city of Laokai, which used to be a home of the MNDAA, one of the uh, ethnic groups fighting and against the military government. Three Brotherhood Alliance has been formed for, for many years. And uh, so they are uh, the three M groups that are in this alliance and how important they could be for Burmese politics in general as well. So uh, I'm going to like first introduce you with um, some abbreviations uh, because uh, there are lots of so many groups and uh, it's important to contextualize them first. So um, the, the major M group that has been fighting for now is Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army also known as MNDAA. Uh, so they, they are from Kokel ethnic group. And, and uh, other M groups are fighting along with them include uh, the Air National Liberation Army. This is also another ethnic M group in Shen State. And uh, we also have Arkan Army, which is really, they, they, are, they are based in uh, western part of Myanmar, but they, they send a few of their fighters in Chen State and they fight together with the two other MP groups. So the MNDA has a long history of um, struggle in Burma. They were a splinter group which uh, left the Communist Party of Burma. And uh, the Communist Party of Burma has been fighting with the military government uh, ever since the independence. In 1989, the the Communist Party of Burma broke up into smaller ethnic armies, and MNDA is one of them. So in the 90s and 2000s, they had a ceasefire with the with the government, uh, but in 2009, they began fighting with the military government. The can be said about the NTNLA. They were formed in the uh, 1960s with a different name, different leadership, but then uh, they had a ceasefire in the 90s, uh, but it didn't last long in the 2009 and they began fighting. And ever since they came to fighting, uh, I will say they are gaining the, their territories uh, slowly and they've been gaining a lot of manpower as well. And Arakan Army, and, and arguably is the most successful uh, rebel group in terms of manpower and firepower. They represent uh, ethnic Rakhine group in western part of Myanmar, uh, near in the Bangladesh border, but they, they sent uh, their fighters to fight along with. So these ethnic groups are fighting along with other more recently established armies. So the, these armies are anti-Luanta, anti-military government armies. And um, the difference is that uh, the former ethnic armies, they come from ethnic minority groups. But uh, the newly reformed armed groups, 
they come from ethnic majority, mostly made out of uh, young people who were angered by the military uh, coup and military rule. So uh, some of the uh, end groups that I mentioned to be fighting along with uh, their brotherhood alliance, I include uh, Burma People's Liberation Army, BPLA, and People's Liberation Army, uh, PLA, and uh, Mandalay PDF group, uh, People's Defense Force. So these these end groups, according to media reports, uh, we know are fighting along with the more established uh, ethnic armies. And there's been, you know, a lot of reporting about the gains that these armed groups are making against the military junta. Um, can you tell us what the latest is on that front? What's new is that this is probably the first time in post-independence history of Burma where the military laws a lot of territories in such a small amount of time. So the operation was announced a metaphor, and they've been gaining um, a lot of strategic areas in northern Shan states, uh, including the border battles with China. So we, we need to also know about the context of military coup and, and popular resistance to the military coup that started in 2020 February. Like I said before, most people probably came across newspaper headlines about Burma in February 2021 when the military staged a coup against the popularly elected um, government led by the NLD. So there have been hundreds of thousands of people out on the streets uh, that protested against the military rule and military dominance in the society in general. And they faced a very brutal, harsh crackdown by the military. Soldiers opening fire against uh, against the protesters, and there's been just reckless, uh, bloody violence uh, on the streets. Uh, many young people they desired to go to the ethnic and groups and desired to take up military training. So uh, the resistance has been going on for quite some time. But of course, uh, because they are very new to the resistance, they have been not very successful. They can contact guerrilla warfare, uh, as just, uh, it has been the case in, um, in in the middle of the country and also in the southeast of the country. It's not an overstatement to say that the military government, which calls itself the State Administration Council, their troops have been stretched thin since the coup in 2021. So there has been a little public support for them. Uh, they inferred a uh, very public anger towards their military for their brutal crackdown uh, on protesters. So the Operation 1027 have occurred in the context of all these political um, situations. Uh, the Alliance captured today uh, up to one, more than 100 positions of the military government. Uh, in other shell states and in other areas as well. Um, so the alliance also controls several highways and also they destroy, they managed to destroy the bridges to make sure the military could not send in the reinforcements to, to their troops. So they, there's also synchronized offensive in other areas. They have been making public statement that their offensive against the religion will come in waves. So they have been fighting in Kachin State in the north, the guy in the middle, and then Rakhine and Chin State in the west. But if they secure the state capital, 
that means uh, the entire state will be under the control of the resistance. Thank you for that. Something that maybe hasn't been reported as much internationally is that the Brotherhood Alliance has announced that one of its aims is to eradicate what it calls cyber scam syndicates in the Kokang region. Can you tell us a little bit about these scams and why why they are focusing on this issue in particular? So to understand that, we probably need to talk about particular relationship between the ruling military and you know, the militias, or what they call it, Border Guard Forces. BGF for sure. So the military has been fighting the ethnic armed groups for quite a while. And one of the strategy that they use is they know that like their soldiers who have like basically recruited from other parts of the country, mostly from ethnic majority, but not Buddhist. So their soldiers are not very familiar with the territories of the ethnic groups, ethnic minority groups. So they decided to make a deal with uh, the militias group in the region. So what they do is, so these militias groups agree to be under the command of the military. They're not under complete uh, control of the military, but still they follow their orders to some extent. So in return, they like their leadership, the leadership of these militias groups, known as BGF, they can operate businesses in many parts of their economy. So um, initially, they are in mining, trade, also they engage in illicit economy, and they slowly move towards casino business. They built casinos, hotels in near the, the Thai borders in the Kagan state, and also in Shan states near the Chinese border. And these casinos are, as you can imagine, unregulated. So during the COVID, they lost a lot of their businesses, tourists can come in. So as a result, they put a lot of their gambling businesses online. And from there, they went to the scam businesses. So what they do is they, uh, they use uh, a lot of these online apps, social media to scam people. They might, they might be just calling people's phones. They've been scamming and trying to traffic people into their uh, Casinos, and then they just lock them down. Basically, just use these people as these are victims, but still they use them and they force them to do scam other people. So that has been the their main business model. So needless to say, it caught the attention of the Chinese authorities, and they have been trying to crack down on these scam centers, uh, scam businesses. So what I think happened, I don't have like a solid evidence, is that the MNDAA, the rebel group, probably made a deal with the Chinese government. So they wanted their Laokai city back because this is uh, their home as recently as 2009. Um, so they wanted the city back. And in return, the Chinese government probably give their tacit support to the rebels. Because uh, the militias who control the city currently is just causing a lot of instability for China. So they don't want it. Torture Chinese citizens. They even kill Chinese citizens. And so they want the leaders of these scam businesses. And uh, there was um, some interesting media reports about uh, who ran all these scam centers. So they are basically for influential families who operate these scam operations. And surprisingly, um, they... They not only run these scam operations, 
uh, some of their like uh, relative, like uh, their sons, they, they might have their son um, as the head of the BGR or Burmese police force. And some of their family members are actually the MPs of the military uh, affiliated USDP party. So as you can see, the business people who are behind the scam operations are very intertwined with their military leadership. The Chinese government wanted there for a very long time, and but for SAC, they are unwilling to turn in their own like their BGF leaders who work for them. And then to to make my point, uh, one of the scam businessmen he received an honorable title from the uh, SAC chairman Miaoline uh, recently. Um, so the military need BGF to keep keep in check the ethnic rebels. But the issue is the BG, the BGF uh, business empire was is rampant and it, it tapped into scam businesses and all that illicit trade that are too lucrative for them to give up. This is why the uh, rubber group aimed to do eradicate cyber, cyber criminal scamming syndicates in the region. Thanks for that. And speaking of China, what do you make of comments made by the junta chief that China is providing tacit support for Operation 1027? I believe that there must have been some level of understanding between the Chinese government and the rebel, because otherwise uh, there is no way they can fight near the Chinese border. There's been a lot of instances where the rebel fights with the military near the Chinese border and the Chinese the Chinese government doesn't like doesn't like it. So that they pressure both the rebel groups and the military government to come to a ceasefire agreement. It doesn't really end up in peace agreement, but it results in temporary ceasefires between all of these groups. So uh, the fact that they continue fighting uh, near the Chinese border means that China probably believe that at least the city of Laokai should be ruled by a rebel group instead of the SACD-aligned militias, uh, the BTF. Because China wants to put a stop to all these scam centers once and for all. And so that means they probably make an agreement with the MNDDA. And also the relationship between China and Burma, there's been ups and downs. So the democratic reform that happened in 2011, it started because many people, many analysts believe because of the military distrust towards China. Uh, there has been some sort of relationship with Ch between China and ethnic groups. And they don't really approve of that. So instead, they want to open up to the West. And what, that's why they wanted to uh, go ahead with the rough plant. And during the NLD government, uh, the and the government led by Aung Suji, they have a good relation with, with China to a certain extent. And then when the Rohingya crisis happened, it pushed them towards China even more because China is the only country perhaps that is a bit more understanding towards the, the early leadership uh, when it comes to the Rohingya genocide. So, uh, but the 2021 coup happened, and then China has total distrust towards the pro-democracy groups. And there is a reason as well, uh, because when there have been uh, massive demonstrations against the military rule in 2021, 
as some of the Chinese old batteries have been vandalized. Uh, also, people protest against the Chinese em- embassy in Yangon because they believe China has supports uh, the military leadership to some extent. And also, there have been conspiracy theories that um, the coup it's uh, engineered by China to a large extent, but um, I don't think they are uh, they're true. Uh, China doesn't know about the coup in advance and. Uh, but uh, China, of course, compared to the Western country, it's a bit more uh, welcome towards the military military government. Uh, they normalized the relationship um, a few months after the coup. And then uh, just this year, the Chinese foreign minister uh, visited Shiro and met with me online. But now that this happened, I think the relationship between uh, the SAC and China it's a little bit worse than previously. One of the telling signs uh, that I can see is in the past weeks, there were some protests staged by pro-military Buddhist nationalists in front uh, against China. This is very unusual in, in a country where freedom of speech is just shut down. So what that means is that uh, these nationalist protests against China probability was approved by the, um, someone in the higher apps before they can do that. So the military generals were probably convinced that China is involved in the rebellion, uh, in the attacks against the military. And the, the spokesperson of the military even calls it invasion. Um, so there's a hint that the Chinese forces are like behind the operation in um, there have also been reports that the military has been using airstrikes in kind of retaliation to these armed groups. What do you know about the number of civilians that have been killed and displaced by shelling? And I'm also curious what the impact has been on the Rohingya community who have, you know, been impacted before this. It is not and it is not an exaggeration to say that the Burmese military adds like an occupying army against its own population. So this is not new to many of us. Um, so there is a, a very obvious pattern that emerged out of the way the military conduct its military operations is that whenever they suffered um, casualties in their infantry units. Uh, they will just resort to artillery and airstrikes uh, in the in the areas controlled by the rebels. And also they made no distinction between civilians and fighters. And also um, they have made airstrikes, artillery strikes on refugee camps, residential areas for quite some time. Um, so in the drylands, which is in the middle of the country, PDF, or LDF has been fighting with the military, and as a result, many people have to flee for the first time in their life. Some of there are some refugee camps set up, and some people had to just go and live in the jungle because they are afraid of the airstrikes. And similarly, uh, there have been um, a lot of uh, displacements going on in Kachin State, now in Shadow State, Rakhine State as well. And to make things worse, the military has this, uh, what they call, 4 cap strategy in their military doctrine. 
So what that means is they want to cut off the rebels access to food, finance, intelligence, and recruitment. But in reality, what that means is that they just targeted civilian populations. They, they will just like ban villages and they will just ban crops of the villagers in the hope that then they will just cut off the food of the rebels. And that trigger a mass displacement, whatever that happens. And as a result, there have been a lot of refugee crisis in uh, in Thailand, in in China, and also in, in India. So as for the Rohingya, there has been major controversies because the Arkan army know that whenever there's a fighting, the military will just attack civilians. So instead, like like uh, for them, Rakhine, they all they answer to the Rakhine people. And they were recruits uh, primarily from Rakhine ethnic group. So they would like to fight in the areas where Rakhine people lived. Instead, they fight in the areas where they are Rohingya uh, villages. Yeah, so the, and so when that happens, uh, it's, it's a bad news for Rohingya uh, villages. They have already faced the genocide um, previously, so they needed to run uh, and flee other areas. International uh, humanitarian organizations, their efforts to address the humanitarian crisis is largely ineffective, primarily because uh, they don't want to challenge the state power that is the military. Uh, so their humanitarian efforts are quite limited, but uh, most of the refugees or internally displaced people, they mostly rely on the, the CSO, look the local humanitarian groups and CSO that have friendly relationship with the rebels. And you were speaking about how in recent weeks, you know, people have been fleeing and they've been fleeing across borders um, and into countries like India and China. So what has been the reaction from these countries to, you know, these advances being made by armed groups, particularly given there's, you know, several ongoing infrastructure projects along the along the border? So there are primarily three neighboring countries that people uh, war refugees flee to, China, Thailand, and India. So Thailand has been historically a hub for pro-democracy activists, but recently it has, it has changed. Um, the military winter in, in Thailand, relationship with the Burmese government, and uh, that results in some of the hostile policies of the Thai government towards the pro-democracy activists, rebel groups, and also war refugees in general. So as for China, China doesn't like instability in its border. It's been uh, very open about it. And, and, uh, and also because China has all these important infrastructure projects from the Belt and Road Initiative. They are the, one of the foreign governments which acknowledged the military uh, government, SAC, uh, in the first few months after the coup. And that was because of the China support toward the military government that initially earned a lot of anger from the, uh, from the pro-democracy groups in, in Burma. But because of the recent fighting, there are a lot of uh, refugees coming towards the Chinese border. Uh, so as for India, uh, their local Mizoram government is very friendly to refugees because of the shared culture and ethnicity. But of course, the national government of India is very close uh, towards the rebels. 
Uh, I think uh, their official policy so far is that they just want to work with their the SAC, and what that means is that um, they're very close tied towards the the rebels and uh, anyone affiliated with the rebels. Um, there's also been some discussion about how Operation One Zero Two Seven opens the door to a new political template for Myanmar. Um, what do you think that might look like, given the different aims of all these armed groups who are involved in the operation? Ever since the coup and the resistance to the coup occurred in 2021, so there's been a lot of analysis on regime collapse, whether and how SAC, the military regime, can collapse. Um, so there's been a civil disobedience movement going on ever since the coup. So the, the government employee desired to strike against the military government. They no longer uh, work for them. And the security forces also join in. So according to the, the watchdog organization, there have been over 8,000 uh, members of security forces who desired to defect from uh, the military. So these security forces come from the police and enforcers. Uh, so the in 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 Burma, the police is under the command of the military, and they are essentially treated as soldiers. The problem is, police members and soldiers, when they defect, they defect out of conscience. Um, they no longer want to associate themselves with an army that desires to kill its own people, peaceful protesters. So that's the major reason that uh, they defect. But during the uh, Operation 1027, what we see is we're seeing for the first time, perhaps first time in the post-independence history of the country, that soldiers are surrendering in a large group. That is very unusual. So one of the questions is if, it, if the defection continues and uh, because there's been um, such a low morale in the military, we could perhaps see positive front towards the regime collapse. Of course, the realistic interpretation of the recent events is probably more to do with the regime collapse might not be um, in the far away future, but the recent collapse of the regime troops that are very rapid, it's probably because the SEC want to consolidate all his troops in one position. Um, and also one of one of the skepticism about uh, the resistance in the media and in the anal analysis is that all these M groups, they have different aims. So for instance, the Abne M groups, they only care about their uh, own territories. They want to have autonomy in their own territories. Whereas the newly established M groups like PDF, LDF, they want to just top all the military government wants and for all. And, um, and also one interesting thing is the strategic location of all these M groups. If you look at the map, it is quite fascinating that the Nekiro, the capital where the generals live, it's surrounded by all of these rebels. In the north, in the east, in the southeast, and in the west. And there has been popular saying uh, among the resistance, which is all roads lead to Napier. Um, so if they, if their resistance pick up momentum, and if if they happen to seize all the important uh, military positions of their military, the region collapsed could be very quick. But of course, um, there is a very hopeful reading of the situation. Of, um, the more, more realistic interpretation will be that 
uh, the rebel might gain some territories, but uh, the military will continue to fight. But what that really means is that there's been a renewed hold for the resistance. That and of and of course, the, if this continues, the military government will be forced to make deals with the resistance. Thank you so much, Ong, for taking the time to talk us through what is happening in Myanmar. And uh, one last thing before you go, uh, we do like to ask everyone who's participating in the podcast to recommend something to listen to, read or watch in case people want to learn about armed groups in Myanmar or just the situation in Myanmar in general. Um, do you have anything that you could recommend to our readers or listeners? So because I'm a, a student of politics, I like to recommend uh, three books that are in the field of politics. The first book is kind of a classic one, Farmer, Insurgency and Politics of Ethnicity, written by Martin Smith. It helps us understand why the some of the ethnic groups are fighting and what is the strategy of the military in crushing the resistance to its rule. The second book, also a classic, is uh, Making Enemies, why in state building in Burma. This book written by Mary Callahan. This book uh, really goes into details on the the inner workings of the Burmese military and, and why they treat their own citizens as, as their own enemies. And the last one is Myanmar's Enemy With It, Buddhist Violence and the Making of a Muslim Other, written by Francis Waite. This is this um, basically about Rohingya genocide, but it's, it writes um, on the perspective of the Burmese government and why they began to view Rohingya as an enemy that is to be got rid of from, from the territories. Thank you so much, Ong Kong Miab. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today and for giving us an overview about what's happening in Myanmar right now. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you want to help us bring you more updates and stories, you can sign up for membership at www.himalmag.com membership. We've got a range of membership plans for you to choose from. You'll get access to our archival newsletter specially curated for you and even Himal's iconic right-side-up map with its startling new perspective on South Asia. And if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of South Asia Sphere, head to the link in our notes to sign up for our newsletter which will bring you the updates right to your mailboxes every fortnight. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever it is that you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback for the current format of South Asia Sphere, or just want to talk about how we can make it more accessible for you, don't forget to head to the link in our episode notes. We'd love to hear from you. And that's it for today and for this episode. See you next time.